If the church of our Lord is to grow spiritually and stand firmly upon the foundation laid by the founder himself, Jesus Christ, then the church must have strong leaders. And I'm thankful for uh, the men we have here at White Oak who oversee the flock of God. And as we talked about in Bible class this morning, what a, what a wonderful privilege and yet an awesome responsibility to be the under-shepherds of Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. Think about that. We didn't look at that passage in Bible class this morning. We were looking at Acts 20 and Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. But in 1 Peter 5, the apostle Peter, who was also an elder in the Lord's church, admonished shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears. What's the implication? When the chief shepherd appears, the fact that he refers to Christ as the chief shepherd shows that the elders over the flock of God in various places, they are the under shepherds of the chief shepherd. And for them awaits the crown of glory that does not fade away. Yes, if the church of our Lord is to grow spiritually and stand firmly upon the foundation laid by the Lord himself who shed his blood to purchase the church, it must have strong leaders. And those leaders are workers. They are workers. And we must continue to develop men in the Lord's church who can be strong leaders, strong workers, willing to face a great challenge because there is no question about the fact that we face a challenge in the church today, but that's nothing new. Remember Paul's warning that we studied in Bible class this morning to the elders there. I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Those were challenging times. These are challenging times. But I want to notice a man in the Old Testament for a few minutes this morning who faced a great challenge. A challenge to become the leader of God's people at a very crucial time in Israel's history. And from his example, we can glean, I believe, some very important lessons which can encourage God's leaders today, the elders, to be strong in the face of the great challenges that they are called to face. Look with me at Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. The first nine verses we're going to read together. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous 
that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a great treatise this is on leadership. Wonderful treatise on leadership. As God called Joshua. And we begin by asking why. Why did he call Joshua? Obviously it was because of his character. It was because of the training he had received at the hand of, of Moses. And that brings to mind the absolute essentiality of training our young men, teaching our young men early about what the eldership involves, what it means to be a deacon in the Lord's church, a special servant working under the oversight of elders, what it means to be an elder, to create in those young men that desire to serve their Lord in that wonderful way. To aspire to becoming an under-shepherd, if you will, of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Joshua was of the character that God could, with confidence, call upon him to replace another great leader. The leader who was characterized as meek above all men on the face of the earth, Numbers 12.3, that was Moses, but he was Moses' assistant. That's the key. He was Moses' assistant. He had, he had learned at the feet of, of Moses. And now, there was a vacancy. Why? Because men do not live forever. Great leaders do not live forever. And certainly we wish and pray for those who are the overseers of the flock of God in this place and in every place where godly men are overseeing flocks of God that they would have long and fruitful lives. But even if they do, they don't live forever on this earth. There are vacancies to be filled. Great soldiers of the cross do not live forever. There are vacancies to be filled in congregations. What kind of men will fill those vacancies? Qualified or unqualified? And I wish I could say that there's not a single congregation among God's people that has ever appointed unqualified men to the eldership. But you know, if you've been in the church very long, and I know, they have. They have. But we need to make sure that we're doing all that we can to prepare men to meet the qualifications given by the Holy Spirit through inspiration in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to become qualified, godly elders over the flock of God. God called Joshua because of the kind of man he was, the kind of training he had received, but to fill a vacancy that will inevitably come at some time or another, in every congregation. But there was also a stream to be crossed in this text, wasn't there? That Jordan River was to be crossed. 
And the promise was to give them that land. Go over this Jordan. Verse 2 of Joshua 1. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. That didn't mean there wasn't going to be a part they had to play in taking the land, but it was God's gift and they had to respond by obedience in taking the land. We see that when we come to Joshua 6, don't we? With Jericho. See, I have given Jericho into your hands, God says. Then he tells them what to do to take it. God gave it to them, but they had to respond by obedient faith. There are Jordans to be crossed today as well. Plans are to be made for the future if we are to grow as a congregation. And we must launch out by faith and show the kind of faith and demonstrate the kind of faith that God's people in this time had to demonstrate as they obeyed what to them may have seemed like senseless instructions and directions to march as they were around the city in a certain fashion, to wait for the priest to blow upon the trumpet, then to shout with a great shout, and then the walls of the city of Jericho would fall down. They did not question those instructions. They, by faith, went forward. They launched out, realizing God was with them. And we must also do that. And I believe we are doing that under the eldership and the leadership here at White Oak. God's people can never be content to stay where they are. No Christian can be content to stay where he is. Remember Matthew 12, 30? He who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathering with me is scattering abroad. We're either gathering or scattering, but we cannot stand in the field and do nothing. If we're to reap a crop, we're going to have to sow the seed and do all that we can to cultivate it and be gatherers and never lose sight of that. You realize that the farther the Israelites went in the text we have read, the richer they became. And that's a point we don't need to lose sight of. The farther we go, the richer we become, spiritually speaking. That's true of individual growth. You will never experience spiritual riches in your individual life if you are content to stand or stay where you are. You've got to go forward. The farther the Israelites went, the richer they became. Here was the promise. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, that's the Mediterranean Sea, shall be your territory. But they had to go forward and to take it, and as they went forward, the richer they became. That ultimately amounted to about 60,000 square miles of territory that ultimately was given to them. And incidentally, that is a blow against premillennialism. The premillennialists tell us the land still hasn't been given to the Jews. Joshua tells us otherwise. And if you read Joshua 21.43 and Joshua 24.15, you see that the land promise was fulfilled. There is no future land promise. It has been fulfilled. Some 60,000 square miles from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Mediterranean all the way there, that has been fulfilled. But the point is, the farther they went, the richer they became. The farther they went, the more land 
they possessed. And that's what we must be about. We must be about going forward, launching forth, and doing all that we can to reach the precious souls around us. You know, if you're familiar with White Oak, what White Oak's seeking to do in that regard. And I don't know if they've been mailed yet. Tommy's not here today. He's preaching down in Georgia today. But if they haven't gone, they'll go very, very soon. 980 residences in this immediate era will receive the Good News Today card with the White Oak information. And then Tommy will be doing follow-up with those 980 homes looking for prospects. We are also in the process of taking advantage of another outreach online. And many of you are familiar with the Searching for Truth material that is excellent material. It's a modernization, if you will, in terms of the technology of the old Jewel Miller film strips. Very well done by John Moore, who hosts it, produced by World Video Bible School. And no doubt thousands of people have been converted already as a result of that, that series. Sometimes simply putting it in the hands of an individual has resulted in a conversion without anyone being involved until that point in time when that soul was ready to obey the gospel. Well, now they have developed online that whole series where individuals can go and study the material there on the web, ask questions. But when they do, by our participation, we'll have our own little address at that website so that if anyone from Chattanooga, and we'll advertise it in this area, anyone who goes there based upon the address that we advertise in this area will be directed to us. It will be as though we did it. If they have a question, it'll come directly to us. If they want further study, it'll come directly to us. And we can advertise that all over the Chattanooga area, anywhere where we can reach people locally with that follow-up effectively, we can do it. So the 980 homes initially, and there'll be more, no doubt, that outreach is in process. And with the good news today, outreach locally and beyond. The oversight of these elders is an oversight that, that has vision. For souls. Vision for souls here and vision for souls everywhere. As I mentioned in Bible class, we had a Bible correspondence course student sign up from Sri Lanka. From Sri Lanka. And that's through our presence on the web through Good News Today. And so I am deeply appreciative of the faith and vision that is being shown by the shepherds of the flock of God here and the expenditure of funds that they are willing to make, to make that happen. We have much to be thankful for. But these men will not live forever. We hope they'll live a long, long time. But they won't live forever, nor will any of us. And there is an enemy to be subdued. And that's another point about Joshua that we need to realize here as we review our text. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. 
will not leave you or forsake you. No man, no man will be able to stand before you. At this time, there was an enemy to be subdued. There were the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites. And all those sites were there, weren't they? And they needed to be subdued. We have enemies today that have to be subdued. And some of those enemies at times are within ourselves. Because we first have to subdue ourselves. And we do that based upon love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is the great chapter on love. And when you read through there and see what love does, as has been suggested, if you'll remove love and put your name there, you'll see there is a self that needs working on, isn't there? Love suffers long, put your name there. Does that describe you? And is kind? Love, put your name there, does not envy. Love, put your name there, does not parade itself. Love, put your name there, is not puffed up, etc. We see that we have to work on ourselves. There is an enemy that has to be subdued initially, and that is we must subdue ourselves. And we have enemies even within the church. We have moral issues with which to deal. We have doctrinal problems that have to be subdued. Now, think about something very important in regard to what Joshua and the people were to do. And this was through no fault of Joshua's, but they were told to completely drive out their enemies from the promised land, weren't they? Drive them out. Because God did not want them to be corrupted by the presence of these idolaters. And yet, ultimately, they were led into these idolatrous practices, the Israelites were, because they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And if you look over at the book of Judges, you see that that is exactly what took place. They were to drive them out, but they did not complete the process. They did not complete the process. And if you look at chapter 2 of Judges, you'll see various statements made about the fact that they did not drive out all the people, these heathen people, from the land. And yet they were to make no covenant with them. They were to utterly destroy them. And yet they did not. Listen to some of it. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Taanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Well, the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land, so the Israelites were at no fault whatsoever, right? Wrong. Didn't matter how determined the Canaanites were to dwell in that land, God said, destroy them, drive them out. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, forced labor, but did not completely drive them out. And then you just keep reading. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwell in Gezer. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitra. Nor did Asher drive out, etc., etc., etc. And look at the result. 
look at the result. What's the lesson for us? It's obvious, isn't it? We cannot tolerate sin in the church. And the leaders in the church must take a stand against sin. Members must stand with those elders as they do in holding up their hands. And we've talked about that and how, how few and far between in so many congregations today are incidents where discipline is practiced and where ultimately, unless repentance occurs, withdrawal of fellowship takes place. Now, it can be done in the wrong way, and it has been done in the wrong way. It's been done hastily. It's been done unscripturally at times. No question about it. But that does not mean it can't be done scripturally and carefully and lovingly and right, because it can. And it must, I believe, if we're going to be viewed as faithful to the Lord. Because just as God's people did not drive out the heathen from the land and it came back to hurt them, I believe any congregation will be hurt by the Lord in failing to do that. You remember what we've talked about before in 1 Corinthians 5 where the man was living with his father's wife, his stepmother is the indication, and the congregation was actually puffed up about it. Instead of loving the individuals enough to admonish them and ultimately to withdraw fellowship if they didn't repent, they simply were puffed up about it. It seemed to be so happy, I guess, that they were that inclusive. I don't know exactly what was going on. But I do know that Paul was not happy about it, and by inspiration he said, you need to do the right thing here, and you must do the right thing, and they did the right thing. And when they did, the man repented and was restored to fellowship. And in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, he made a statement that ought to, ought to echo in the minds of every, every elder who will not practice discipline. He said, I wrote to see whether you would be obedient in all things. I wrote to see whether you would be obedient in all things, meaning would you discipline. And so what you have to face is, if you're not willing to be obedient in all things, then you're ready to face the judgment or willing to face the judgment by being unwilling to be obedient in all things. And yet the vast majority of congregations among us, I, I think I can say that with confidence, the majority, may not be the vast majority, but I believe vast will go there too, for one reason or another will not drive sin out of the camp. In other words, they will not lovingly deal with sin to the point of actually withdrawing fellowship because they love the souls of those individuals that much. And they will make various excuses. They've withdrawn themselves. They left us. They've withdrawn themselves. That's a scriptural impossibility. You cannot do it. Because withdrawal doesn't mean separating your presence from the congregation's presence. Withdrawal is something the congregation does toward the individual, not the other way around. Never is it the other way around. And so there is no reason. And let me mention something I've been thinking about recently and see if this argument makes sense to you. I can read in the matter of the church at Ephesus where the Lord, through John, commended the church at Ephesus for many things. Their doctrinal stance, their stand against error, but he said, I have this one thing. Nevertheless, I have one thing against you. What was it? You've left your first love. You've left your first love. I take that to mean you've left your first enthusiastic zeal for the gospel. You've left your first love. 
you're doing the right things in terms of standing against doctrinal error and false teachers and so forth, but you've left your first love. And then did he say, now, because you're doing all these other things, even though you've left your first love, it's going to be okay. No, he said, unless you repent, I will come, I will remove your candlestick out of its place for that one thing of leaving your first love, that first enthusiastic zeal for the gospel. Now, let me ask you this in relation to discipline. Does it not follow logically that it is love that causes a congregation to discipline wayward members? Shouldn't it be love? And is it not the case that if you fail to do it, you have left your first love in that regard? I believe so. I believe so. And that's one thing, one thing about which the Lord is obviously very concerned and says, if you fail in that regard, then I'll remove your candlestick out of its place if you leave your first love. And I don't see how you separate love from discipline because love disciplines. In your home, if you love your child, you discipline your child. And if you don't discipline him, you may love him and you can say it all you want to, but you are not demonstrating love unless you discipline. And we see the awful results to the people of Israel. It ultimately led to their captivity in a strange land, first to Assyria in 722 B.C. and 135 years later in Babylon of the southern kingdom, went into captivity and it could have all been prevented if they had driven the sin out of the camp. And yet, they didn't. But you know, the world is also an enemy. The world is an enemy. But the problem is that many members of the church treat it as a friend. And we need to be on guard against worldliness. And we've talked a great deal about it. But verse 7 of our text also reminds us that there were laws to be kept. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. What a great statement this is. Turn not to it from the right hand nor to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Don't be an extremist in binding what God hasn't bound. Don't be a liberal in loosing what God hasn't loosed. You just be with the book. And stay with the book. And does that not suggest, in fact, doesn't it clearly state that you can? That God's laws can be kept, they're knowable, and they are doable. And of course today it's the law of Christ. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that law of Christ that we're to keep also tells us of the need for leaders and the need to uphold that leadership and to hold up their hands. But there were also expectations to be met, finally. Expectations to be met. It takes courage and confidence to meet those expectations. God had expectations of Joshua as a leader. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide an inheritance, the land I swore to their fathers, to give them. That's verse 6. Then again, only be strong and very courageous. Strong and very courageous. Strong and of good courage. Go to verse 9. Be strong and of good courage. Three times. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and very courageous. It takes courage 
It takes courage to lead God's people, but the Word of God provides all that we need to produce that courage. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And no doubt promises like the ones in verse 5 gave Joshua courage. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And that promise is as good today as it was then from God, because it's God's promise to His people in every generation. I will not leave you. Don't leave me. Don't forsake me. Be strong and of good courage, and I will not forsake you. And His word, as the prophet Isaiah writes, will not return void. God's presence is there, and He will lead us. David knew that as he faced the giant Goliath, didn't he? And don't we know it too, if we've been in the church very long, can we not look back at our lives and see, and see God's providential hand at some point or points in our lives? We can't always identify it clearly, but we believe in it because God's Word assures us that it's there. And can't we look back and see some things that, that we could certainly identify as, as God's help in our lives? Oh, there are great challenges, and we need great leadership to meet them. And it'll take all of us, and we need to encourage our leaders. There are great results of great leadership. What are they as we close? The flock will follow. When you have great leaders, the flock will follow. The flock as a whole will be united. The flock will be guarded and protected. The flock will be guided and grounded. The flock will be fed and led. The flock will be at work. And the flock will be respected. And conversions will take place. And I pray that the good men who are our elders here and elders throughout the Lord's body will follow the Lord's formula for success as given. In verse 8 of Joshua 1, the book, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It's not the law of Moses, but it's the law nonetheless, the one to which we are amenable, the law of Christ. And that's still good advice as we apply it to that law. You know, that's really the success formula for all of us, though, isn't it? That's not just the success formula for God's leaders. It's the success formula for all of us. We must follow the Word to reach heaven. Can you say that's what you're doing this morning? Not if you haven't expressed your faith in Christ by repenting of your sins and confessing Him to be the Christ and by being buried with Him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's what you must do. That's the gospel plan of salvation. Believe or die in your sins, John 8, 24, Jesus said. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3, Jesus said. Confess me and I'll confess you before the Father, Matthew 10, 32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. The Lord waits to add you to his kingdom, the church. And if you haven't been added because you haven't done those things we've just outlined from God's Word, we plead with you to do it now. And if you have, but you know that you have not continued to live as you should and that you need to come home to your first love as one who has wandered from the fold, 
then we plead with you to come home in repentance, confession of sin that's been publicly committed, just saying simply, I have sinned. And we'll pray with you and for you to a God who loves you and who will certainly forgive if we truly repent. And for those who need no repentance, may we all be reminded of how important it is to have godly leaders, godly elders, and to hold up their hands and to encourage others to become among those whose hands we hold up as they enter into the greatest work that could ever be contemplated. And that is the work of being an elder in the Lord's church. President James A. Garfield once made the statement, I have stepped down from the presidency and stepped up to the eldership. Words to that effect. He viewed being president of the United States as nothing in comparison. I think what the statement was, I've stepped down from the eldership to become president of the United States. I knew I'd get it, but I thought about it long enough. I have stepped down from the eldership to become president of the United States. If you need to respond to the gospel this morning, will you come as we stand to say?